How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. It has been a tumultuous few days. Hope you all are hanging in there without sports. I've been watching a lot of reruns of baseball games in the past. I've been watching a lot of sports documentaries, 30 for 30s, you name it. You know, it's just a time for you to reflect back on sports history and kind of educate yourself a little bit. At least that's what I've been doing. And just remembering some crazy things in the past because sometimes we get so caught up in the present and the future, especially with the Marlins, given the uh, tough last few years that the fish have had and how exciting the future is. It's kind of tough to look back sometimes, but when you look past those tough uh, 2013 to 2017, 18, 19 years, there's a lot of exciting Marlins history. I've really been diving into that 2008-2009 Marlins team that flirted with the wild card and watched some old games there. That's been a lot of fun. I know Fish Stripes, Eli Sussman was saying that he will be putting up some of the games on the website. I don't totally know how that's going to work, but I know he said he's going to have the full games up there. So that's going to be pretty fun to go back and watch some of the most exciting Marlins games in history. But just trying to stay busy. It definitely feels like a weird dream. But this is going to be a prospect preview series. We're going to continue the typical schedule here in terms of the Locked On Marlins episodes. You can pretty much expect one every day of the week, excluding weekends. But I think now this time of year, I'm going to throw in a couple weekend episodes here and there. That's why I threw that poll out the other day, just to see if people would be interested in the occasional weekend episode, especially with everything going on right now. So let me know if that's something you all would be interested in. I will continue to do that. But in terms of this episode, I'm going to be talking about two underrated Marlins prospects. We're getting really close to the top of the Marlins top prospect list. And it's getting much more fun to talk about players as we get closer to the blue chips, if you will. Uh, This episode will be Lewin Diaz and then Braxton Garrett. Those are eight and nine on the list. Two of my favorite, most underrated, in my opinion, Marlins prospects. And I'll get into why they're individually underrated as I talk about both of them. Both interesting cases of players that have had unique circumstances and uh, really came out this year and broke out. Both of them did. And while Diaz was not as highly touted, given the fact that he wasn't the seventh overall pick like Braxton Garrett was, he was still a very high-end prospect being signed for $1.4 million out of the DR by the Twins. So that's who I'm going to start with here is Lewin Diaz, number nine on my top 20 Marlins prospects. Like I said, signed in 2013 for nearly $1.5 million out of the Dominican Republic. That was by the Minnesota Twins, who the Marlins ultimately acquired him from. And at the time, he was about 17 years old playing the outfield, but he was even heavier in comparison to how he is now and was not mobile at all. Not to say that he's the fleetest of foot now, but he did drop some weight this past year, and that definitely helped him in his ability at first base. Ultimately, he was placed at first given the fact that he was not able to get around too well in the corner outfield. Uh, He's still 6'4", 225 pounds, which is a good strong size for a first baseman, but given the fact that he was even heavier before, it's pretty hard for a guy that big to be effective in the outfield, especially with his average to below average arm. But now that he's dropped some weight down, scouts have really liked what they've seen from him defensively, say that he has the potential to be a plus 
defender at first base, showed some good range and has some good hands over there. So that is a really nice development, even though the real concern with Diaz, or the focus, I should say, has always been his bat. That's why teams were on him. That's why the Twins signed him, and that's why the Marlins traded for him. It's for his bat. So let's talk about that bat. He came over in that trade, the Sergio Romo trade, which I liked because the Marlins did give up Chris Valamont, who I do really think will have a good shot to be a major league pitcher and a back end of the rotation arm. He looked really good in his stint with the Marlins, looked like a diamond in the rough. But when you look at the trade, the Marlins were never going to get Luis Diaz for just Sergio Romo. That's pretty obvious. And the Marlins were going to have to throw in a prospect there. Chris Valamont seemed a little bit expendable given the fact that the Marlins had so many pitching prospects uh, throughout the system and made him a little bit more expendable than maybe another position player in the Marlins system. So they're able to upgrade in terms of prospect quality by trading Valamont. And the only reason why they were able to get Luis Diaz, I, I believe, is because of how deep the Twins are in terms of their first base depth with uh, their prospects and major league roster. So the Twins were able to swap out a surplus for something that they needed, which was a pitching prospect. And the Marlins did the same thing as well by switching their surplus of pitching prospects for a bat, which they mightily needed. So talking about Luis Diaz, he had a breakout season in 2019, 121 games across the two levels of IA and AA. He hit 270, slashed with a 321 on base percentage, 550 slugging percentage, 27 bombs, which is the most impressive part of it because he only hit 12 home runs. He had never hit more than 12 home runs in a single season before 2019. It drove in 76 runs and added 33 doubles. So the power really came on strong for Lewin Diaz this year. And that was the really exciting thing to see because he's not your typical power hitting first baseman in the regard that he does not strike out a lot, really has not posted a strikeout rate over 20% in his minor league career besides his little stint with the Marlins in double A, just 30 games where he struck out just hardly over 20% of the time. And I'll get into that little stint too, because the numbers are a little funky there um, in terms of those 31 games that he played with the fish. But the double A stint that he had with the twins, he was spectacular. And when you combine all the numbers, the numbers I just said, he was really good overall in 2019. He made major adjustments in terms of his ability to hit the elevated fastball. That's still the question with him. Teams were concerned when he was just a prospect, a teenager, in the DR. And then that was still the concern with him as he was trying to get out of the lower levels. He played several seasons in rookie ball before really breaking out in low A in his first really productive full season. And the big concern with him was, can he tap into that power in the games because he would show the raw power in batting practice and can he hit that elevated fastball? You see in his stance, he has the, the low hands, which isn't a concern for players because at the end of the day, you, you, you have to get to the same spot before you hit the ball. It's not The stance doesn't matter. At, but if it's impeding your ability to get to the place you need to be before hitting the ball, then it becomes an issue. For Luis Diaz, 
I don't know if it's necessarily the stance is the reason why he can't hit that elevated fastball as well, at least before this year. But that was always the concern for him was the elevated fastball. Obviously, he had to hit it better this year. I wish I could really pull out some advanced statistics on it. But for minor leaguers, you really don't get those heat maps in terms of where they hit uh, what pitches and whether it's outside, inside, elevated, lower that's a little bit harder to find with players with like Lou and Diaz. So it's going to have to be more of the eye test, which I'll keep an eye out this coming year. But if you're going to hit 270 with 27 bombs, you're got, you got to be able to be hitting the elevated pitch at some points, especially when that's the scouting report on you. Like I said, the strikeout rate being lower is really nice to see because it's refreshing. In today's game, you have a power hitting first baseman. You're expecting him to strike out 25, 30% of the time. It's just that's the trend of the game today, but his approach is very advanced. He looks like no matter what level he ascends to, the strikeout rate doesn't jump, and that's something that really is a good indicator of the fact that he'll be able to continue to advance to higher levels and quickly be in the major leagues, I think, this year. And those are the things that translate, right? Not striking out too much. But the other thing that I like to say translates is walking. When you are able to get on base, work the count, that's something that usually plays up to the major leagues as well. That's my only gripe with Lou and Diaz is he does not walk as much as you'd like to see for a power hitter. Uh, he's just a tick below average, just 6% roughly in his career that he walks when average, according to fan graphs, is 8%. But that's average across all positions. So Lewin Diaz should be above average as a first baseman as it is. So he's well below the mean for a power hitting first baseman. But that's something that can change as time goes on. He's still only 23 years old. And I will take the lower walk rate with a lower strikeout rate than the opposite. So that's still a better situation to have. And in terms of his prospect allure, because that's the interesting thing to me, is he really puts up crazy numbers last year and he seems to fly under the radar a little bit. And I think that's because first base prospects, they don't get the love that other positions will get. And that makes sense because teams aren't going to be as excited about a player that's anchored to first base. You see it happen in the drafts all the time. That's always going to be something that is counted against a prospect when they are trying to get drafted high or they're trying to get a bigger signing bonus, it's, oh, well, he's anchored to first. Uh, I might take a chance on a shortstop that, you know, might not hit as well, but he's more athletic and shows the ability to play a more athletic position. That tends to be the case. And when you look at the top 100 across, whether it's Baseball America, MLB Pipeline, that's why you only have three top 100 first basemen. That's Evan White, Andrew Vaughn, who was just drafted, and Tristan Casas, who still has an outside shot at playing third base. They list him at first base slash third base. So really only two guaranteed first basemen in the top 100. And there are plenty of first basemen in the bigs, or in the minor leagues, excuse me, that have the potential and probably will be very good major league hitters, but that's just the way it is. You know, you're you're a first base prospect, you're not going to get the love that some of these other players get. So it comes with the territory. But the thing with Luan Diaz is, as a left-handed hitting first baseman, he's very unique. He has the ability to hit for average. He's shown that he can now tap into that power, and he doesn't strike out a lot. What more could you want from a 
big power hitting prospect that's six foot four, 225 pounds. So now with the above average defense, everything looks like it's starting to come together for this kid and things are going to hopefully trend upward to the point where he is playing first base for the Marlins this year. Just the big question is, where do you find the at-bats for him, assuming Aguilar and Garrett Cooper are both hitting? And that's a whole nother conversation. But in regards to his stint with the Marlins in AA, the 31 games after the trade, he hit just 200. So that was a little bit strange given the fact that he was flirting with a 300 batting average with the Twins. But then when you look at the advanced statistics, it just kind of just seems like a fluke because the power numbers were still there. He still, despite the 200 batting average, posted a 108 WRC+. And it seems like the big tell for that 30-game stint with the Marlins is the 188 BABIP. That just shows he was incredibly unlucky in those 30 games because his BABIP is usually in the high 200s, sometimes around 300 because he hits so many gappers and home runs. So that makes it seem like, okay, I'm not really worried about that stint with the fish. He is going to come back and with the wind surge now, as I have to remember all these new names, feels like they're always changing in AAA. And he'll be solid. He'll be fine. I'm not worried about those 31 games where he hit 200 because the outside numbers still looked really good. So Lewin Diaz, really exciting type of prospect that has a high floor and should be in the big leagues sometime this year, whether it's late, middle of the year, will probably depend on injuries and maybe trades. But this is a player that is part of the future for the Marlins, but one of the prospects that should be up sooner rather than later. On the other side of the break, someone a little further out from making his Marlins debut, but maybe someone even more exciting as time goes on. If you've been a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you've heard all the great advertisers working with Locked On to reach sports fans. But you may not know that Locked On Marlins is a great way for your local business to reach passionate Marlins fans just like you. Unlike any other podcast, Locked On gives your local company the unique ability to reach local podcast listeners. Not any podcast listener, a Locked On podcast listener. If your company wants to connect with Miami Marlins fans in a predominantly male audience that is well-educated with disposable income, then let's put your company right here on this Locked On Marlins podcast. Local fans love to support local businesses. Text the word ADVERTISING to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com backslash advertising and let us know who you are. We'll get our team to help your team achieve Locked On advertising success. Once again, text the word ADVERTISING to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com backslash advertising. We look forward to hearing from you. So now Braxton Garrett, the former first-round pick by the Marlins back in 2016. Man, how time flies. It feels like that was just a year or two ago, at least for me. But the Marlins took him seventh overall, $4.1 million signing bonus, and he makes four starts in 2017 right after the draft, looks really good in Greensboro, and then unfortunately gets shut down with Tommy John and misses a great deal of time. He definitely was a little bit slower than most when it comes to returning from that Tommy John surgery, but there's really no reason to rush your 19, 20-year-old first-round pick to return from Tommy John. So the Marlins did not rush him, let him come back, on his own time and really let him build that strength back up before 
coming into a full season and this coming year or this past year, excuse me, he makes his full season debut, if you will. And he was spectacular. He made 20 starts for the Jupiter Hammerheads, posted a six and six record, a three, three, four ERA in 105 innings pitched. He struck out 118 and really just didn't look like a pitcher that had not thrown more than just about 15 innings in his professional career. So Braxton Garrett showed why the Marlins took him in the first round back in 2016 and didn't really show too many signs of rust. He was a little bit shakier in the beginning, though, I I will say, but was still really good out of the gate. But if you take his stats from just May to July, which exclude his first few starts, which was just shaking off the little bit of rust that he may have had, 13 starts, he had a 2.47 ERA and 73 innings pitched. So he was even better uh, in the middle of the season when he really got into his groove. He faded a tiny bit at the end. However, he still got a promotion for a little cameo in A, made one appearance. But to get there in his first full season to already make it to A was really impressive and just overall was refreshing to see that he could still pitch because I think a lot of Marlins fans had PTSD from Tyler Kolick, who even after the Tommy John surgery, the Marlins were hoping would still be able to show why he was the number two pick in the draft. But unfortunately for Kolick, it just never came together. But focusing on Braxton Garrett, the really strong season in his first full year and the arsenal is great. He's got a fastball that's mostly in the low 90s. You see reports of 90 to 93, but I've seen reports of 92 to 95. Overall, everyone has said that he can touch 96. And that's with the fact that he did not pitch for nearly two, almost three years. So that is encouraging in the fact that his velocity was there right away, because that means he can still have more to come. He still has a pretty slender frame when you consider he's 6'3", 190 pounds. So there's more room to throw on some muscle and some more strength there. The command is still good on that fastball that sits in the low, touching mid-90s. So if he's able to get a few more ticks on that fastball, a southpaw that can sit 94 to 96, there's they're pretty much giving him a high floor in terms of what scouts are saying and tabbing him with a number three ceiling. But I think that ceiling is a little bit low for a pitcher we've only seen pitch one professional season. And in that professional season, he would have had the best strikeout rate in the Florida State League had he qualified. He was just a few innings short of qualifying. But at 10.1 strikeouts per nine innings, that was the best in the Florida State League. So that's something that would only get better, assuming his fastball can tick up a few miles per hour as he gets more innings under his belt. The curveball, which I can attest to, is a plus pitch already, will continue to be a plus pitch at the highest level. Having seen his curveball in high school, it was just downright nasty. A true 12-6 curveball that just drops off the table. And his changeup is not a bad pitch either. More average compared to the other two, but from what scouts have said, it shows the ability to be above average and complements his command and fastball pretty well. So a good three-pitch mix, giving him a very high floor. I would be more surprised if he did not pan out than some of the other prospects in the Marlins system, just because of how good his command is and how advanced his pitches are for a player that's only 
pitched really one full season in professional baseball. The other thing that I really like about Braxton Garrett is the fact that his numbers against left-handed hitters and right-handed hitters are nearly identical. And that's because the curveball, the true 12-6 break, it makes it good against both lefties and righties. Instead of a more sweeping curveball that would break into right-handed hitters and be less effective, it's a more up and down, north to south, top to bottom break which makes it more effective to hitters from both sides of the plate. And the changeup being already pretty good is a great pitch to be able to use to right-handed hitters as well. So that's a really encouraging sign for Braxton Garrett to really think that his stuff will play up as well. Maybe I'm a little bit biased having seen Braxton Garrett pitch, having faced him and just covering Marlins prospects more frequently. But it doesn't make sense to me that he is not a top 100 prospect on just about every single outlet. I know Keith Law put him in his top 100 and that was really refreshing to see because he's not in any other top 100. And let me tell you why he should be a top 100. When you consider the fact that he's a first round pick, a first round pick is almost always a top 100 prospect until they give you reason otherwise. And then usually they need to give you more reason otherwise to finally drop them out of your top 100 list. I mean, we saw it with Tyler Kolick. He was clinging on there for a good bit of time until it was just realized that he wasn't going to amass to what we were hoping. But there's just so many pitching prospects that struggle, 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 and they still cling on to that top 100 list until they can't anymore. But for Braxton Garrett, I understand falling out of the top 100 when you don't pitch for two years. But when he comes back and shows you that he is a first-round talent for a full season as a left-handed pitcher in the Florida State League, putting up strikeout rates that nobody else in the league was putting up, it was the number one strikeout rate in the league for any pitcher that threw over 100 innings, what else does this guy have to do? And that's the thing for me that's kind of wild. Why is Braxton Garrett not now proven himself enough to be back on those top 100 lists? He showed that his fastball is fine. He showed that he still has that command. And he showed that the Tommy John really didn't change anything. He's exactly who you thought he was when you put him in your top 100 list after the draft. So why now, when he proves you right, right after the draft, unfortunately, it was two years later, but he proves you right that he's still exactly who you thought he was. Why is he now no longer in your list? That makes no sense to me. And I think after this year, There is no excuse if he puts up these same numbers for him to not be a perennial top 100 prospect. And I am going to be waiting to see when that happens because it should have happened already. And when you look at other situations that have been similar, I look at Clark Schmidt of the Yankees. He is a top 100 prospect pretty much everywhere you look, including Baseball America. And he missed two seasons almost, about a season and a half, and then barely pitched for half of a season. I think he only racked up about 18 to 20 innings. And he had a great year last year. Good for him. I'm glad he's back. He's a right-handed pitcher that is a year older than Braxton Garrett, put up pretty similar numbers, not as good strikeout rates, is a righty, not a southpaw. And he is already back in the top 100. And he was a later first-round pick, 17th overall, by the Yankees. How does that work? What has Clark Schmidt shown that Braxton Garrett hasn't? And what is more projectable about Clark Schmidt that Braxton Garrett is less projectable of as a southpaw, a tall southpaw with a good curveball that just had a great season and was drafted higher and was more highly touted coming out of the draft. 
Schmidt was drafted in 2017, but he's older. So it doesn't make any sense to me, but that's just the classic effect, I think, of a Yankees prospect being propped up a little bit more than a Marlins prospect. I don't like to play that whole victim card, and I don't like to talk about that stuff too much, but this case is just blatant to me that he is just getting disrespected flat out. But Braxton Garrett will give evaluators no choice but to consider him as a top 100 if he continues to put these numbers up. And I am a big fan of his, very much looking forward to his season and what I expect to be double A this year and see if he can continue to build that velocity up as he gets more innings under his belt. But this is a pitching prospect that could climb the system faster than most think. And with his advanced pitchability, his good command, he could be in the bigs as early as midseason 2021, definitely by opening day 2022, which seems to be the Marlins all around window for contention as we get closer and closer to that. So I hope you enjoyed this continuation of the prospect preview series. Like I said, continue to expect episodes day in and day out, despite the lack of action going on outside of what we have going on here on the podcast. I will continue to find fun things to talk about and talk about plenty of Marlins prospects and answer any questions you have. Stay active on Twitter. Let me know any topics you might want me to cover, whether it's historic or looking forward to this season or more prospect coverage. I am pretty much an open book and excited to do anything at this point, though I have plenty of ideas for the coming weeks. Please be sure to rate, subscribe, let me know how I'm doing, and anything you guys would like me to cover, I am open and willing to consider that with everything going on right now. So thank you for listening as always. This has been another edition of the Locked on Marlins podcast. I will talk to you all tomorrow.